Alright, this morning is Sunday. It is February 24th. The year is 2008 for our CD ministry. And our message this morning is called Compromising Kings and Righteous Remnants. Compromising Kings and Righteous Remnants. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 10. This is a pretty familiar story to most, so I will try not to spend a great deal of time on King Saul's life, but I do need to make a couple points from it. Uh, Adam, would you write something on the board for me? Or Lindsay, whoever would like to. One of the pastors in Baton Rouge recently gave me a good word. He said, a healthy church, this is what you're writing, Adam, it's a quote, a healthy church must not be based upon the generosity of a few. It must be based on the sacrifice of all. Yeah, you, you put it however you can. A healthy church must not be built upon the generosity of a few. It must be based on the sacrifice of all. He was speaking about a congregation as a whole. And the congregation not be built upon a few people who was doing what was right, but upon every single person in every way that they can doing what is right. As I began to get excited about that, I realized that in our own lives, we are often generous in some areas. And let me clue you in here. I am not speaking about money at the moment. We are generous with our friends. We are generous sometimes with people that are easy to love. You got a buddy who has a four-wheeler and y'all like to go ride it together? Well, it's easy to be nice to him on your bad day. But you've got a boss that seems to loathe your existence. Pretty darn hard to be nice to him on a bad day. The Christian walk is not based on a few moments of excellence. The Christian walk is not based on one year you did good in Jesus. It is based on a long obedience of sacrifice every time the King calls upon you. We all know people who excel in a moment. They go up like Roman candles and come down just as quickly. But if you were hanging off of a cliff and somebody had to hold the rope on the other side, you don't want the man who is strong for a moment looking for a pat on the back. You want the man who is strong day in and day out because your life depends upon it. It occurred to me in Samuel 10 that a king named Saul who was the people's choice for king and indeed was anointed by God. Something happened to him. And in the sixth verse of the tenth chapter, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. And when I read that verse, I got excited the very first time. Because it was in 1993 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon me in power. I was an insolent young man shaking my fist in the air at God, angry because of what some religious people were saying, and mostly because of the conviction that it wrought in my heart. I had a real problem with the idea that you cannot say you have fellowship with the Father and walk in darkness. You cannot say, Lord, Lord, and enter His kingdom without doing His will. That was breaking my heart, because all of my life I thought if I believed the right thing, if I could quote the right scriptures, everything was okay with me. In fact, I wore it a little bit like a shield. Anytime the penetrating voice of God came into my thoughts or my heart, I could quote Romans 10, 9, and 10. The day I was baptized, the day I was saved. What I could not do was confidently stand and look in the mirror and say, I am doing the will of God. And when a man came to me and spoke to me about Matthew 7. Anyone who says, Lord, Lord, but does not do my Father's will, cannot enter the kingdom of God, I was broken. Because I could say all of the right things. I could look the part. I could wear my suit on Sunday. But I could not honestly say I was doing the Father's will. And I was broken because I began to realize that I wore a facade called Christianity, that others accepted it because it made them comfortable with their facade. Saul was changed into a different person. A whole nation accepted him as a king. What's that little thing you do, Matthew? You look like a man. You sound like a man, but you're not a man. 
He looked like a king. He sounded like a king. But his actions were not that of a king. And it's not because he started bad. His whole life began to change. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, the Word says. He had a real conversion changed into a different person. He got saved. Verse 9 of chapter 10 says, As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. Not only was he changed into a different person, a king, but his heart was renewed. Something profound happened to him. Turn with me to Samuel 13. The day that Saul was born again, the day that Saul was changed into a different person, the day that his heart changed, he was given some things that he must be obedient to. There is something missing from the American gospel. We teach people to believe, but we do not teach them to obey. You go back and listen to the Great Commission again. He says, you go forward and you teach them, making them my disciples, teaching them to obey. And we can't even quote it because we're not used to hearing it. We tell people, believe on Jesus, believe on Jesus, believe on Jesus, and we never focus on obeying Jesus. Romans 1.5, Paul said that he called people from the Jews and the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. In American Christianity, we act like Jesus can be Lord without doing what He says. Friends, that makes God your genie. We pray to Him like Santa Claus. Lord, what I want is a better looking girlfriend. What I want is more money for Christmas. What I want is, and it is all about what God should do for you. The salvation written about in this book is what we can do for God. When you realize the depths to which He went to change your life, I preached to you in a message about His skin for your skin. The reason that I did that is I wanted you to understand that the God of the universe reached His hand down into humanity to do for us something we couldn't do for ourselves. He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He knows exactly what it is like to be hungry. He knows exactly what it is like to be scared, but not subject to it. He knows what it's like to look at a loved one who is experiencing death and weep. He experienced humanity in the fullest sense. After 2,000 years of declaring Him as God, we have a hard time seeing Him experiencing humanity. Have you ever had to quit a job when it hurts? Some of you have. I know that. you ever had to walk up to somebody that you love and they've loved you? but your relationship with them is unholy, and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to choose Jesus first. Jesus experienced these kinds of pains, and so He knows what He's asking of you when He asks it of you. He cannot be your Lord, or He cannot be your Savior without being your Lord. Saul looked like a king. His heart was changed by God that he would be a king. And he actually goes out into a battle before this chapter that I'm going to read with you. And his son pretty much wins the victory. But who gets the glory for battles? King. He takes the glory of his son who wins a battle. First selfish act that you really see. Pick up with me in Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men were sent back to their homes. We're going to skip on down to the 7th chapter. I'm sorry, 7th verse. Actually, we're not. Let's just keep reading. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel, and 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, 
and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw their situation was critical, and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks, and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. The Philistines were an oppressive force in Israel. In fact, we're going to find out in another few verses that the Philistines were such an oppressive force in Israel that they went throughout Israel and killed all of their blacksmiths. In this time, your ability to produce iron made you a military power. And Israel was so intimidated by the Philistines that they had no blacksmiths, no abilities to produce swords. God had sent them into this land. And once they were sent into the land, during the early years, victorious, trusting, excited, then somewhere along the way, they got very wise and learned that it wasn't always good to be fanatical about their faith. It was much better to be reasoned, a.k.a. compromising, And they learned to live with an oppressor that they were supposed to drive out of their land. Now, I know I'm not preaching to anybody in this room. When we say that we were born again, throwing off shackles of an oppressive sinful nature, our goal was to press on heavenwards towards God. And somewhere along the way, we decided that it was not all that important to keep our eyes pure, our relationships holy, our hearts wholly devoted to the Word of God. Other things began to creep in. And all along there are people sitting on our left and sitting on our right saying, Oh, brother, it's okay. We all do this. Wearing a facade of kings, but not acting in a noble manner. These people, when it came time to actually battle with the enemy, some were so scared, they joined the other team. You ever had a friend like that? When I was in high school, I had a buddy who said, Hit him, Eric. Hit him. Well, I hit him, and he hit me more times than I hit him. The same buddy who originally encouraged me to hit that guy said, Oh, you got your uh, rear kick. The church is full of people that claim to be Christians, claim to be at war with the enemy. But when the battle lines are drawn, they are so scared that they'll be exposed as compromisers or that they might have to stand up. They hide in enemy territory. How many people in church stand up and say, I'm a Christian, my auntie told me about the Lord. But when they're in the bar on Friday night, they don't wear the same label. I know, I did that. I went to a Christian school, wore the Christian facade, and was a devil inside. And the only one that didn't know it was me. Saul started the race well, but his compromise continually put Israel at risk. Pick back up in verse 8, 7. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Do you know how far this is from biblical warfare? In biblical warfare, Deuteronomy says, you get the priest out there in front of the army. The priest is to stand up and announce, if anybody's scared, go home. We don't want you. If anybody is worried that they planted a vineyard and hadn't had a chance to enjoy its wine, go home. We don't want you. God wants those who are sold out and will not take those who are sellouts. Period. Our God is a mighty military commander and He recognizes something. When people's hearts are not fully committed to a cause, they muddy the water and friendly fire casualties grow. Say, well, what danger is it if I love the Lord on Sunday and Wednesday, but on Friday and Saturday I'm not so excited about Him or so vocal about Him? The danger in it is everybody looks and they do not see your life as sounding a clear signal. What they see is a compromiser. Somebody who 
says that they love the Lord, but their actions deny His very existence. Nobody ever applies those words to them, so I apply them to me. I can tell you that I said all of the right things, but I did none of the right things. When it came right down to it, I had more soul in me than a righteous remnant. And God got hold of my life through great offense. You ever been good and mad? I mean, I'm talking about cap to the point where you wanted to fight. A pastor one time made me that mad. I rushed the aisle. I was going to take him out in front of the whole church. Not a joke. And were it not for another pastor who tackled me in the aisle, it might have gone bad that day. And when I sat at home in my room all alone and wondered why was I so enraged, I realized because the man was stepping on my toes. He was exposing what I knew to be true and didn't want to acknowledge. I was the hypocrite that people talked about. You know, hypocrite was not such an ugly word when it began. It simply meant an actor, an impersonator. How many people have been in church long enough to impersonate a Christian? But when they are hard-pressed, Christian is not what you see. I worked in the car business. And the men told me, what you say is great, but if you get slapped in the face, I bet we would have to duck. What they were trying to tell me was, we've heard all this before, but when somebody is squeezed, we have never seen it. God will put your trust in Him to the test because He wants those who are sold out and will not accept those who are sellouts. He is a noble King. He is worthy of all of your heart. Keith Green once wrote a song, and in the lyric of the song, he said, If you will only come to me on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, don't bother coming at all. His wife and his best friend begged him to change those lyrics because they were searing. And his conviction would not allow him to, and I am glad. I had a dating relationship with the Lord. I put on my best clothes. I came to a specified place to meet him. We said only the nicest of things. And then I put him away and went back to my other life on a regular basis. God is a jealous God and he will not share you with the world. You cannot be both a whore and a bride. It will not work. So Saul is quaking with fear. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter, so he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. Now that may mean nothing to you, especially if you're not familiar with the story. But suffice it to say that if God saves you, changes your heart, makes you into a different person, and calls you a king before a whole nation, he has the right to tell you, he would like you to wait seven days before you do something. Can we all say that that's true? If he's God, he has the right to tell you, I want you to wait for something, right? Would you accept from your employees in your secular jobs? Would you accept the answer? You say, hey, do not order copy toner, copier toner. Don't do it. You wait one week before you do that. And they say, well, you know, I was nervous and... It was almost a week, and then I ordered it. They'd get fired, wouldn't they? Darren, would you fire them? Darren said I'd write them up several times, then fire them, because he's thoroughly versed in mercy and grace. I know, I'd fire him. <laughs> well, God had told this king, who is his representative on earth, much like Christians are supposed to represent God on earth, I want you to wait a specified time. The problem is all the people are scared. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. Isn't it interesting that when a man of God appears, suddenly the king's excuse is not fear. Suddenly the king's excuse is not that he was worried about getting whipped in battle. 
suddenly the excuse is, I was just trying to seek the Lord. I quit telling people, hi, I'm Pastor Stevens. And I've been going by Eric for about 15 years. Because I noticed something. When I walk up and say, hey, Casey, I'm Pastor Eric. Good to meet you. Not Casey. But the average gentleman goes, oh, uh, my wife and I, we go to church. I didn't ask. You know, I was just here to eat crawfish like you. What are you talking about? I find that this whole religious thing comes out of them immediately. I was in the car with a member of this church one time. We pulled up to his neighbor's yard who's out there cutting grass. The guy leans over and says, hey, neighbor, come here. The guy walks up, spits out, I mean, a truly remarkable string of expletives. Like he'd been working as an artist to master this flow of his enunciation all of his life. And as foul as it was, truthfully, you're not surprised when you see a dog bark, are you? How about a bird flying? I was not surprised to see a sinner sin. Didn't bother me at all. Then the member of the church leans across me because I'm driving and says, Hey, by the way, this is my pastor. You should have seen the man shrink from his six-foot figure to about five foot tall. He began to cuss the member of the church and say, You're supposed to tell me he's a pastor before I started to speak. Why? Could it be because we are used to wearing an image of something that we're not really? Could it be that we are comfortable looking like Christians but not acting like Christians and we have an unspoken agreement with everybody around us? I won't point it out in you if you don't point it out in me. Let's just pretend you're okay and I'm okay. Meanwhile, the Philistines are murdering us. Such an agreement seems to have been in practice in Israel. I know it doesn't apply to not one of your lives, but it did apply to mine. And at some point I had to say no more. No more. Better the vegetables with the righteous than the meat with the wicked. And I contemplated losing girlfriends. I contemplated losing friends. Losing everything that an 18-year-old can possess. And said, it's worth it. Change me, mighty God. Change me. Now, I got born again that day. And here we are so many years later. And that same fire still burns in me. But I've noticed in the church world, it doesn't burn so brightly. And I wonder why. They've been changed. Their lives are different. Their hearts are different. They're called kingly. Well, what's wrong? And then I saw Saul's answer. In verse 12, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. Your mommies and daddies love you? Some of them did, some of them didn't. But in an ideal world... For sure your mama loved you, at least while you were a baby. You wouldn't have to go ask her every five minutes, do you love me? Her actions showed that she loved you. She fed you. She clothed you. She worked for your benefit. Saul doesn't need to seek the Lord's favor. The Lord's actions towards Saul have shown he's in the favor of the Lord as long as he does something. What is right? You know when you become insecure in a relationship? when you know you're wrong. I want to tell those of you that are dating, if your significant other is consumed with jealousy, there might be a reason. When we've done something wrong, we know in our hearts we don't have the Lord's favor. And so we want to seek it. But you cannot gain the Lord's favor by seeking Him in any way that you choose. Cain and Abel found that out quickly. There is a prescribed way to come to the Lord. After Saul's thought, it says, So I felt compelled. Saints, when we have thoughts that are not in accordance with God's Word, they compel us to do things God would not want us to do. There's a young man in Shechem, about 2000 B.C. He thought that a daughter of Abraham was beautiful. She's so pretty. And he thought, I must have her. And a man justified rape over that. Now you can look and see that that's disease-twisted thinking, can't you? 
It's okay if you answer me. You can see that's disease-twisted thinking, right? Yes. It's just as diseased and twisted to think you can do the thing God has told you not to do, and yet He'll be pleased with you. Just as diseased and twisted. What did He tell Cain? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I'll say, well, preacher, to stand up and say those things, you must get it right all the time. No. No, but that is the direction my heart is set. With all of my heart, I am trying to get it right. And every time an area shows up that the thoughts are not congruent with the Word of God, I throw the thoughts down. In 2 Samuel 13, the understatement of a lifetime is mentioned. The 13th chapter, 13th verse. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over all Israel for a time, for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went to Gibeah and Benjamin and saw counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. How interesting is that? When people are not in the favor of God, when we are not in a place where we know that God is pleased with us because of our trust in Him, what do we end up doing? We count our resources. We look and say, well, I know this is not really what God wants, but do I have enough money to get it done? I know this is not really what God wants, but do I have enough support among my friends and family to accomplish this? I know this is not what God really wants of me, but will he or she accept it? Is that not speaking to anybody? Oh, it's so easy to see in Saul's life. It's harder to see in ours. The cars God didn't tell us to buy that we bought. I've done that. The things that seem like such a good idea. Prudent. Wouldn't that be prudent? And yet it turned out to be absolutely the opposite direction. What do you do, saints, when you find out that you were headed out towards New York, only you were on I-10 headed west? What do you do? You repent. You turn around. The most admirable thing a human being can do is look at their direction and say, this is not the direction the Lord God sent me, and I am going to turn around. And you know what's hardest about it? If there's a whole school of fish or sheep or whatever you want to call them with you that goes... No, don't turn around. It makes us look guilty because we're also headed the wrong direction. And we start to wonder, what will they think? How will they act? And fear starts to well up in our hearts. I ask you to consider something today about this compromising king. Should he have been more scared of God or his own troops? Because he's going to count them. But where were they when he needed them on the day of battle? They were hiding in caves, in thickets, and some of them even ran to the other side of the Jordan. Sometimes the friends and the reputation that we fight so hard to keep, if you just evaluate it for what it is, it's truly worthless. Worthless. When I was a teenager, I was so proud to have friends that we would all do anything for each other. Don't you hear that a lot? I'd do anything for you, man! It was a Neanderthal, and I was a Neanderthal at the time, that beat me out of my mind one night after a high school dance. Imagine that. And all of those friends who would do anything for you, man, watched this guy pound his fist into my face until I couldn't move. Now, that's fun to watch on movies. You know where it's not so fun to watch? From that perspective. I've joked about it for years. It's probably the single biggest event that brought me towards Jesus, though. I found out that what I had shrouded around me that made me feel like a king in my own high school was worthless. The admiration of my peers was worthless. The friendships that said, I'll do anything for you, man, were worthless. It was all hollow, and it was all worthless. An empty way of life. When we examine this next part, we're going to look at a righteous remnant. 
And rather than think of these as separate guys, I'm going to read to you about a man named Jonathan. I want you to begin to look at yourself introspectively. As we read, you may have found some parts of Saul that are a little bit like you. You may also see some parts of Jonathan that are a little bit like you. And as we read this, I want you to consider where your allegiances should lie. The latter part of 13 explains to us that nobody in Israel had a sword. (laughs) We won't do it today. But if the memorized Word of God, if that which Psalm 119 teaches you should have hidden in your heart with all you had tomorrow, if the books sitting in your laps were burned up and you were standing before God dressed for battle, would you have a sword? The Bible is the Word of God. It is a sword in spiritual warfare. If you didn't have the book resting in your lap, if you were just standing before God, would you have a sword? Or have you treated the most holy thing on the planet as something insignificant? Spent more time thinking about song lyrics and downloads on our iPods than the Holy Word of God meant to save our lives and equip us for warfare. Hmm. I know my sword would not be as big as I would like it to be. If you're going to go into battle, you want a giant broadsword, right? You don't want a little paper clip, a spoon, right? You've got to fight somebody who looks like Nick. You don't want a spoon. Israel found themselves with a shortage of knowing and understanding God's Word, a shortage of trusting in God. And there were only two men in all of Israel that even possessed a sword. The king and the king's son. Look at verse uh, 23. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his daddy. Why didn't he tell his daddy? Is he doing something bad? Sometimes when God calls you to something, there are a plethora of voices around you. For instance, if you were going to start a church, you might find people that say, don't start a church there. You don't know anybody. At least I've heard that that could happen. You might find people that came and said, that's not a church, you meet in a garage. At least I've heard that might happen. You might find people that say, that's not a church. Those people are not like our flock over here. All politicians and wealthy people, they're a bunch of kids. Rabble. At least I've heard people might say that. We're standing in a place where one man in all of Israel looks out and says, we're camped here and the enemy is over there. What are we doing? Why are we here and the enemy's over there? What is a soldier built to do? A soldier is built to be in combat. In fact, if you've ever watched History Channel and you look at the pilots and the American Air Force, they're antsy. They're funny. The reason that they are is because they train all of the time. They train and train and train. (laughs) And they want to use it. Can you relate to that at all? I'm not suggesting that they're sadists, that they like pain or want to go hurt people. I'm suggesting that they have spent their life training for an event. So they're the only ones not disappointed when they get a chance to use their skills. These people are born to be at battle with the Philistines. He didn't tell his father because his father would have talked him out of it. They're used to compromising together, looking like royalty but not acting like it. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. (laughs) Israel is completely subject to the Philistines. And where is their king? Lying in the shade, eating pomegranates. Woo! Got 600 men around me. I feel comfortable. By the way, the same king, where was he when Goliath was out there? Right, he was hiding in his palace. You don't know people by what they say. You know people by what they do. James says, you say you have faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. 
You know, that book was almost not included in the canon of Scripture because the early Gentile church didn't like it. They thought it was too Jewish. Imagine that. We would rather say, you know what I believe? You can believe that. That's what they say in Louisiana. You can believe that. I know who Jesus is. You know, you can't know what's in my heart. The Bible teaches just the opposite. You do know what's in somebody's heart by what they do. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. That you can see exactly what a man treasures most by the very words that come out of his mouth because they came from his heart. Hmm. Saul's frolicking under a pomegranate tree. With him were about 600 men, among whom, oh my goodness, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Anybody know what an ephod is? It's a garment that priests wear. Now, he didn't say Ahijah, who was a priest. He said Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Ahijah is dressed like a priest, but he's not a priest. He was the... <laughs> oh, this gets really good. Who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub. Ichabod. Anybody know what that one means? The glory of the Lord has departed. Boy, he's got an esteemed lineage. The son of Phinehas. Anybody know who Phinehas is? Phinehas was committing sexual sin in the temple of God and pretending it was okay. So God put him to death in battle. The son of Eli. The son of Eli. See, who was Eli? That's right. He was the one who did not correct Hophni and Phinehas for their sexual sin. So his sons died in a single day in battle and he fell over backwards and broke his neck and God cut off his line from all of Israel said, your family is so disgusting, I don't want one more of you representing me as priests. Hmm. The Lord's priest in Shiloh. The Lord's priest in Shiloh was Eli. The ark's not in Shiloh now, but that's another story. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Now, why do you think Saul has around him 600 men? Why do you think he's in a place, by the way, this place that he's at, Micmac, it's called the hidden place. That's what it means in Hebrew. Saul is hiding where there's plenty of food and he's surrounded by lots of people. And what has he raised up for himself? The man of God, Samuel, who points and convicts him of sin and says, Saul, your actions were foolish. Oh, well, Saul had enough of that. So he raised up for himself a puppet priest. He probably paid him from the royal treasury. Oh, my goodness. They might have even agreed on the 14 points they were going to talk about. And he looked like a priest but he seemed to do whatever Saul wanted him to do. And it's okay because he was from a long line of compromisers. His daddy was the brother of the man named the glory of God has departed. His grandfather? Somebody put to death for not getting his sex life right. Great-granddaddy? Somebody who God considered so wicked he cut him off from the face of the planet. Oh, but he's qualified to be priest. I wonder why. Well, he speaks so well. He's a good-looking man. And have you seen what he's done with our offerings? We're building a new gymnasium. Mm-hmm. We'll evangelize the lost. We've got a new bowling alley. And you know everybody there probably got a donut on Sunday morning. But where was the anointing of God? In the middle of this compromising king's mess, two young men, two men not wise enough yet to know that they were supposed to have compromised with all of the world. Two young men who were stupid enough to believe that if God said attack, they should attack. Two men who were courageous enough to do what God said did. On each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. <laughs> the Hebrew for this is not cliff. The Hebrew for this is rock teeth. The Hebrews are so descriptive, it's amazing. You ever seen the Sawtooth Mountains in the United States? Jagged, high points on mountains. And when they're looking out, they see cliffs, but not cliffs that are flat and drop off. Cliffs that have high points and drop off. Very difficult to climb. One explorer that I read his commentary of this area 
said it was absolutely impossible to get a horse or a donkey to go over this area because there wasn't footing. One was called Bozus and the other was called Sina. One cliff stood towards the north, towards Michmash, the other to the south, towards Geba. Now, I love the Bible for this. The Bible is amazing. It gives you even directions. And he's like, well, why? We should just read over that, right? He says uh, about Sina and Bozus that Bozus was to the north and Sina was to the south. And between this were sharp cliff faces with a path between them. And the Philistines are up here. That's south and that's north. And I thought, why would these directions be there? God, if you're writing your holy word for mankind to be instructed by, what difference does it make what was north and what was south? It just so happens that Jonathan and all of Saul's army and his armor bearer are to the south of Sina. They're in a place called Gibeah. And where they want to go is Michmash. So they're looking at these obstacles, these mountainous teeth. And said, we have to go through those things to get to where God's called us. And then I began to look at these words and find out, well, I wonder what they mean. And what we see is that one means suffering and the other means glory. I actually got these just backwards, by the way. Moses is down here. We're not going to write anymore. You get it. <laughs> they have to go through suffering to get to glory. That's an interesting thing. When God calls us to something, what do we usually focus on? The blessing in it, right? God gave me a new job. What's the next line? I make more money. Anybody ever stand up and rejoice on a chair in this church that God gave me a new job? I'm going to be broke but there's new people to share the gospel with. God gave me a new job! I'm so excited, but i got to shovel sand all day. But I get a chance to preach to people. That's not usually the kind of testimonies we hear. When we pray, that's not usually what we pray for. We don't usually pray, Dear God, let me be humiliated that you would be glorified. What do we usually pray? God, help me. I don't know what's going on down here. Lift me up. Make me the head, not the tail. Bless me, Susie, Johnny, us four. No more, God, us. American Christianity is selfish. We walk around looking the part, but not acting it out. And the Word of God is calling us to something. It's calling us to put to death the compromiser. Listen to what this says. One on each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost. One was called Bozus and the other called Sina. One cliff stood towards the north, Michmash. The other to the south, Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. What a strange comment. Let's go fight with them. They hadn't been snipped in a very private place. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. I said, you know what? We're going to go to war. And we're going to go to war with these people whose privates look different than ours. Probably I don't have a church next Sunday, huh? <laughs> to the Hebrews, what this meant was God called us to fight with them and we are in covenant with Him and they are not. This is a very Hebraic way of saying, if God is with us, who can be against us? We have the promise of God Himself. They do not. Now, where was that in Saul's 600 men? Where was that in Israel called to conquer the nations? Where was their trust that God was with them? They didn't have it because they were not doing the things that God called them to do. But listen to this armor bearer. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Heart and soul. This young armor-bearer was committed 
to God's purpose and His plan. They were about to attempt something that was physically impossible. But He said, I am with you, heart and soul, because He had drawn a line in the sand. He said, I would rather follow a righteous remnant than a compromising king. They look the part and there is no nobility in them. We have pulled Jesus' claws, if you will. We have made Jesus a glowing icon with a shimmering halo above His head. We have made Him weak with tiny little features and dainty little hands. His mouth so small that He looks like a fishing lure in church art. We've made Him look so spiritual that He doesn't look like a human being. I wonder why we do those things. Is it perhaps because if we picture Him in that way, we don't have to act like Him or imitate Him? He seems like something other than us? Friends, the miracle of the Gospel is that the Word of God became flesh like you and me. So that when we looked at Him, we don't have to ask, what would Jesus do? We could ask, what did Jesus do? That He was a man like you and me. The Scriptures record that He learned things. That He grew in wisdom and in stature. That He was hungry. At times that He was tired. At times that He wept. He struggled just like we do. And yet, there was no compromise in Him. A king like that is worthy of a following of people who will at least be with Him heart and soul. What does it mean to have your heart in something? <laughs> you can watch people in praise and worship sometimes. Oh, they're there. Lips are saying the right things. They may even sing in key, unlike me. But their hearts are far from me. I'm suggesting that when we meditate on the Lord, when we find out what He wants us to do, no mountain will seem too high to climb. You are willing to go through suffering to get to the glory because the King who called you suffered greatly that you might get to the glory. I'm suggesting that He's worth it and that we shouldn't sell Him out for a paycheck or the admiration of a friend or the instant gratification of some fleshly desire. I'm suggesting that the King of Kings is worth standing up for. It's worth drawing a line in the sand. And say, what I was yesterday, I will never be again. I am with you, heart and soul. You'll find out when you do this. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. The young man says, Do all that you have in your heart to do. Then in verse 8, Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over towards the men. Let them see us. Where were the rest of the Israelites? hiding in caves, not wanting to be seen, not contending with the enemy. But when you're with Jesus, you'll say, I want to be seen. I will let the light that God gave me shine. We'll wait there until we come to you. We will say, I'm sorry, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, We will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. I want you to get this. When you have thrown out a fleece, it has usually gone like this. Lord, if you don't want me to buy that Cadillac, then it won't be there in 15 minutes when I get back. Lord, if you don't want me to date her, you'll have her break up with me. If you don't want me on this job, then you'll cause the boss to fire me. Always putting the onus upon God to do something miraculous to get you to do His will. What did this young man do? He says, hey, we'll go face this hugely superior number of people with an enormous tactical advantage because they're at heights and we're at depth. And we'll look at them. And if they invite us to fight with them, we will know that God's going to whip them for us. Is that trust in Yahweh God? Is that a trust that maybe needs to grow in us? Could maybe be fanned a little bit so that we could learn to trust Him in a way that we haven't before? You'll find out something. There's always blessing on the other side of obedience. There is always blessing on the other side of obedience. 
He will ask you to do what looks impossible. And you'll say, but Lord, there's suffering. And he'll say, the glory is on the other side. The men who first followed him, who we read their writings, gave their lives for him. We won't give up the admiration of our peers or our favorite television show for him. Saying something's wrong. We dress kings, but we don't act like kings. I don't stand here as somebody who has got it all together. All I can tell you is I'm stupid enough to try. And I believe God's adding people that will stand next to me who will also try. Mm. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. Now it's good that you can't read the actual Hebrew here. This is not like a schoolboy lesson. This is like what a bigger boy might say to you in the schoolyard when no one else is around. Come on up, get some. That's what they said. They're used to the Hebrews cowering and hiding. Why? Because that's what the Hebrews normally did. Saints, when you take your stand, when you first stand and say, I will not yield to the enemy, he doesn't believe you because he's used to getting you to wilt with a small amount of heat. And you can expect that there will be great resistance at first because it will take him a while to figure out you're not going to bend like every other time. And you may have to call upon your God and say, Give me more help, Lord. Trust. Pour it into me. I want to believe I do. And He promises to meet that need. These men's faith rose to the occasion. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. (laughs) Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. Friends, that's a steep climb. Can you imagine you're going to go fight a couple hundred guys and you've got to climb a ladder to get to them and there's two of you? Because that's what this is kind of like. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. I am not suggesting that any man, woman, or child in this room is God's mercenary, His man of power for the hour. I'm suggesting that in a community of believers where we are together, heart and soul, that what you can't kill, you will at least knock down and Casey will put the sword to it for you. And what he can't kill, but he can knock down, Matthew will put the sword to it. I'm suggesting that when men and women come together and dare to trust in the living God, we will spur one another on in our faith and we will see victory. That when the congregation of compromisers get together, they secure defeat. They make themselves feel better with fake ephods and hireling priests. But when men and women get together and say, we will no longer be enslaved by the sinful nature. We will no longer bow our knee to the oppression of the evil one. We can find strength in each other. The question is, who starts to climb the hill first? By the way, this armor-bearer, a great man in Israel's history, right? His name's inscribed upon palaces, right? You don't even know his name because it's unimportant. He might have been three feet tall. It doesn't matter. Any two people will begin to call upon God's name. He's right there with us. amazing. It is amazing. It's so amazing that the devil has worked to keep this truth from us so that he can keep us enslaved. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. I don't know if you've ever been there. But I've been in a very small room with a very big man. I know exactly what that's like. And be looking for any opportunity to get away. Yeah. 
I know what it's like to line up in competition and know that I cannot win this in the first quarter, cannot win it in the second, the third, or the fourth. He's just better than I am. But in the kingdom, what we have is the ability to call on a strength that is not our own. A God who promises in any and every situation He will provide for you a way out. But our God does not snatch us from the tribulation. He causes the mountains to crumble before us. He requires the sea to split before us. He will lead us on level paths if we will just trust Him. Earlier, Israel had a problem. They were hard-pressed, and so they hid. 2 Corinthians 4. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 4. Can you all hang in there with me for just a minute? If you can't, that would be very embarrassing, wouldn't it? In our little church, not quite the compact center, more like the compacted center, there's only one door, and Matthew's between you and it. Funny. The church that Jesus came to found, men carried paralytics up on the roof and dug holes to get closer to him. The church of compromisers watches the clock and waits to see if they can beat their peers to lubies. One says, if I can just get a little more of Jesus, I know I can knock down this giant. The other wears all of the armor and looks the part, but only cares about receiving paychecks. Frolicking under pomegranate trees. In Second Corinthians 4, start with me in the 7th verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That sounds like persistence, doesn't it? We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that... His life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in His presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our God has got the ability to recharge your batteries every single day if you have the ability to trust Him, even if it means death, every single day. Listen to this perspective of this apostle. For our light and momentary troubles. (laughs) You know what he's calling light and momentary troubles? Stoned outside of a city. Five times beaten with rods. Thirty-nine times. Shipwrecked a day and a night in the open sea. In danger from his own countrymen in danger from thieves, robbers, sometimes cold, sometimes without proper clothing, chained to prison walls, light and momentary. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. When you get a glimpse of the glory, you don't mind going through suffering. You realize it's part of the qualifying process. So that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, But what is unseen? What is seen before you is how you'll make a living. What is seen before you is what your peers think. 
What is seen is all of this world and it's passing away. What is unseen is the favor of God and Him alone. If this was the first time you ever heard a message like this, it might prick your heart. The problem with us is we've heard it many times before and we're conditioned with our response. Listen a while, then go on about our way. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He goes on to call his own body a tent. But he was waiting for a building from God. I want to read you something out of Acts before we close. I'm just going to read it to you, and if I'm lying, then you can come back and catch me later. The 14th chapter, 21st verse. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. The message of the apostles in the first century was we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through suffering to get to glory. And I ask you, saints, has the soul in us caused us to compromise and avoid suffering? Maybe it's time to sneak out without His notice. Grab your sword. Give Jesus your whole heart and soul and see if a righteous remnant could not do what a congregation of compromisers refused to do. You would not be here today if God was not calling you. The enemy certainly tries to prevent people from coming to hear these kind of words. I'm assuming that you are here because God wants to fan into flame something that is in you that will take the fight to the enemy. Refuse to sit back and compromise. The question is, how do you respond to that? Romans 8, 5 through 17 speaks of God's glory, His Spirit being in us. Us having an obligation to that Spirit and not to our flesh promising us that if we share in His suffering, we will also share in His glory. I'd planned to teach you about five kings that Joshua defeated. I'd planned to teach you about a wicked antichrist named Adonai Bezek. And I don't have the time. We don't sell our messages for 1999. We don't tell you to tune in for the rest of the story after becoming a member of a special board. We'll be here Wednesday, we'll be here Sunday, and any night of the week that you would stop by. And I will share with you all of my heart and everything that I've learned from Jesus. And perhaps, who knows, one of us might be the other's armor bearer that we might encourage each other to do what we were called to do. But I will tell you this. Joshua was born for the purpose of destroying the enemy, and he knew it. He called upon God at Gibeah and God stopped the sun in its tracks in the sky just to give him more time to strap a first-class whipping upon the enemy. And he whipped them so bad that although they faced five kings and it was just Joshua and his fighting men, because God was with them, they boarded up all five kings in a cave. Joshua did something unheard of. He brought out those kings and had them lay down on their faces and called upon the men of Israel to come and put their feet on the necks of their enemies. So why on earth was something like that in the Bible? Saints, that's exactly what Jesus did. He faced every struggle that you face, and He won. And now what He's inviting you to do in His strength, with His sword in your hand, is to come place your foot on the neck of the thing that has held you captive all of your life. And all you have to do is have the courage to do it. The Jews call our God Adonai. We've translated that Lord. In the south, Lord. In the north, Lord. We don't know what that means. Adonai means my owner, my controller. And it just so happens that there is a false king out there. His name is Adonai Bezek. 
the very first king that the Israelites fought in the time period of the judges. And it's funny. You remember Daddy Bush, President Bush's father? He was never capable of saying the name Saddam. You remember what he said? Saddam. Saddam. Wouldn't be prudent. Saddam. The word in Hebrew for Adonai is Adonai. But it's as if they deliberately mispronounce it so that you can see the distinction. They call him like pepperoni, Adoni, Bezek. And his name means the false god of lightning. Now, who do you think that sounds like? And do you know what he's in the business of doing? He had 70 kings, 70 men who claimed to be rulers, God's rulers. Thumbs and big toes cut off so that they groveled under his table in the most demeaning possible fashion. That's what he was in the business of doing. You can read about it in the first chapter of Judges. Say, so why their thumbs and big toes? It's what separates us from the animal kingdom. It's where God's anointing in Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 14 rested. They put marks of anointing on your thumbs and big toes. Well, why did he want to cut that off? He was trying to reduce those who were called to be kings to animals. I tell you, if you open your eyes, there is a satanic power out there trying to reduce you who are called to be kings to animals. The people of God captured this king and cut off his thumbs and big toes and brought him to the city of Jerusalem and imprisoned him. And that, again, is exactly what our King Jesus has done. He's taken the accuser who wanted to humiliate you, and he's subjected him to public spectacle. Now, what should your response be to something like that? One time in my life, somebody came to my assistance and helped me beat off somebody who was hurting me, helped me defend myself. I felt like I owed that person a debt of gratitude. Jesus came and did for me what I could not do. The foul tongue I couldn't tame, the carnal nature that I was a slave to. He showed me how to restrain, and he has put my foot on its neck so that I am ruled by nothing but the Spirit of God now. How much more gratitude do you think that deserves? Now stand up and let's pray.